0: like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 this morning, it has been a true delight to be back here at Woodlawn this weekend for the conference and today to worship with you. I love the singing at Woodlawn. You sing well, and I'm so thankful for the leadership of your pastor, for his vision and faithfulness here, and I'm so thankful for Laramie's leadership in the worship area, and, and many other things, of course, but particularly in uh, guiding you in scripture, guided gospel-shaped worship and true and rich congregational singing. I'm so thankful for that. I'm also thankful, of course, for Matt and his leadership this morning. Uh, these, these two guys are currently trying to get their dissertations done. And uh, so, you know, those of you at Woodlawn, I give you permission every time you see Laramie Ask him how that dissertation is coming. And maybe with enough of us nagging him, he'll, uh, he'll finish that. No, I'm so thankful to be here and so thankful to be focused on a topic that's near and dear to my heart and was so encouraged by those who were able to come this weekend and talking about the importance of bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'd like to focus our attention this morning on the first eight verses of Psalm 78. I'm not going to do a verse by verse exposition of the entire Psalm, but we are going to look at the context of what the Psalm is communicating and then focus our attention on the first eight eight verses. Let's read those verses together and then we'll reflect on them for a few moments. Psalm 78 verse one, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. This Psalm, Psalm 78 is unlike a lot of the Psalms. It's not a Psalm of praise. It's not a Psalm of lament, probably the two most common Psalms within the 150 collection. But Psalm 78 is often considered a didactic Psalm. Most of the Psalm recounts parts of Israel's history, The first eight verses, which we just read, are really the central teaching, the central command in this psalm. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. But the remainder of the psalm, from verses 9 to the end of the psalm, recounts certain events in Israel's history. But it is a particular recounting of historical events for a very specific purpose. So it's important for us that before we really look into the first eight verses and the message that they have for us, it's important for us to recognize the purpose that the author of this psalm had in recounting all of this historical information. Well, first I want you to notice the specific subject of the history of this psalm, and it's introduced in the very first phrase of verse nine, which begins the historical section. Notice the very opening two words of verse nine, the Ephraimites. So really this history begins with a focus on the tribe of Ephraim. But then look down with me at verse 68. Verse 68 says, He chose the tribe of Judah. Now, wait a minute. Why is he focusing on Judah now at the end of the psalm when he had begun the psalm with Ephraim? Well, this is exactly a question that the people of Israel may have been asking themselves. We know today that the tribe of Judah was the tribe that was chosen as the source of the kings of Israel. The tribe of Judah was the source of the Davidic line. And of course, we know that the tribe of Judah is the one from which the Messiah himself came. But we often forget that Judah wasn't originally the tribe of special status within Israel. Originally the tribe of Ephraim enjoyed a status of blessing. Now who was Ephraim? Well, Ephraim was the younger of the two sons of Joseph. And just before Israel died, Jacob, he blessed Joseph's sons, but he gave the greater blessing to Ephraim. We kind of find that as a common theme in uh, in the early foundation of Israel. Jacob purposely crossed his arms so that when he blessed Joseph's two sons, he gave Ephraim the greater blessing instead of his older brother Manasseh. And so Ephraim enjoyed a special blessing, including Joseph's inheritance. And when the Israelites later began to settle in the promised land, Joshua, who himself was of the tribe of Ephraim, gave Ephraim the most desired allotment of land. Ephraim was given this uh, uh, agriculturally fertile plain and region in the central highlands of the promised land. Ephraim enjoyed a special status. And and particularly because Israel's leader at that time, Joshua, was an Ephraimite. And so the tribe quickly began to be, in the early years of, the, of settling the promised land, Ephraim was the dominant tribe and the central focus for much of the book of Judges. The great prophet Samuel was an Ephraimite. The region became a political and military center of the nation. And in fact, it was in the city of Shiloh in Ephraim that God originally chose to dwell in his tabernacle. So here was the tribe of Ephraim, which had received a greater blessing from Jacob and an inheritance from Joseph. This tribe had been allotted the most desirable region of the promised land. And it was in this tribe that God chose the central, original city of worship in the tabernacle. Ephraim was at the very heartland of Israel. This was a people that had received great blessing from God, great advantage, prosperity, wealth, and even the presence of God himself. And so the question is, why don't we hear much about Ephraim anymore? Why didn't the kings of Israel come from this dominant blessed tribe? Why was the tabernacle later moved out of Shiloh to Gilgal? And then later the temple built in Jerusalem. I mean, Psalm 78 specifically refers to this in verse 60 when it says that he, God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. That's in Ephraim, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. Why, why was that? And most importantly, why didn't the Messiah come from this blessed tribe? Why did the tribe of Judah receive the honored status, according to verse 68, that once belonged to Ephraim? In fact, if you read Revelation chapter 7, when all of the tribes of Israel are listed, Ephraim is not even mentioned in Revelation 7. Why is that? Well, that would have been a natural question for the people of Israel. And that is exactly the question that lies at the background of Psalm 78. Why did God forsake Ephraim and turn his attention to Judah as the blessed tribe? And so it's important as we get to the heart of the purpose of this Psalm, that we take a few moments to discover why God forsook Ephraim, why God, he forso- why God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh and why he ultimately shifted his blessing. Well, first consider with me what we, what we find in Joshua chapter 16. This is the passage where Joshua is giving this honored allotment of land to Ephraim, this choice region known for rich soil and fruitful vineyards. But verse 10 of Joshua chapter 16 says this, however, they, that is the Ephraimites, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. You see, the first thing that led to the downfall of Ephraim is that they disobeyed the clear command of God to completely wipe out all of the pagan inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Ephraim failed to do this. Instead, they, they saw a more profitable alternative. Let's have the pagans live with us and let's just put them to work. But God was concerned with the purity of his people. He did not want the people worshiping as the pagans worshiped on their high places using their altars. And so he had commanded Israel to completely wipe out all the pagan people from the promised land and to destroy all of the sacred places and ways of worship. But the people of Israel in general and particularly the tribe of Ephraim as the central leading tribe disobeyed the clear commands of the Lord. They took the pragmatic route. Instead of separating themselves from the pagans, they integrated themselves within the pagans. At first, Ephraim remained dominant over the pagan people. The pagans paid tribute to them, but scripture is clear. When God's people integrate themselves into the pagan world, the values and customs and ideologies and practices and even worship of the pagans will begin to influence God's people. And this is exactly what happened. In 1 Samuel chapter four, we find an account of one of Israel's battles with the Philistines, a battle that occurred in Ephraim between Shiloh and the Philistine city of Aphek. They lost the battle And after losing the battle, the elders of the people came up with a great idea. Next time, when we go to battle the Philistines, let's take the Ark of the Covenant with us. Now, where had they gotten that idea? Certainly not from the Lord. The Ark was supposed to remain in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. No, they got the idea from the pagans. Pagan people often often carried with them talismans of good luck. And so it was the influence of the pagan people that motivated the elders of Ephraim to take the Ark of the Covenant with them. And you know what happened? They lost, the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines, Shiloh was completely destroyed, and the tabernacle was then later moved to Gilgal. By the time of the New Testament, the descendants of the tribe of Ephraim are are really who we call the Samaritans. Jews who had intermarried with pagan people, fully integrating themselves with the pagan customs and religion, even creating a new form of religion that combined elements of Judaism with pagan worship. You see, what ultimately led to Ephraim's downfall was a failure to forsake the world. Instead, they integrated themselves into the world, eventually adopting the world's ideologies and the world's customs and even the world's worship. Look, look at how Psalm 78 describes Ephraim's problem in verse 10. It says, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot the works of the Lord. That was Ephraim's central problem. That's why they disobeyed the Lord, why they lost God's blessing and why their place of status in Israel shifted to Judah. They forgot the works of the Lord. And really, that's the theme in the rest of this psalm. It's a a reminder of all of the Lord's works and bringing the people out of Egypt and protecting them in the wilderness and punishing them for their sin and showing them great mercy by bringing them back to himself, by showing them great blessing and bringing them to the promised land and driving out the nations before them. And ultimately, most of this psalm is a reminder of what led to their destruction. As verse 67 says, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Now with all of that tragedy in mind, concerning the tribe of Ephraim, let's return to the opening verses of the Psalm, because they provide the key in preventing this kind of tragedy from happening among us, as God's people. How do we prevent ourselves from falling into the same sort of tragedy that Ephraim committed? Well, the psalmist begins Psalm 78 with the solution, with an express command as to what God's people should do to prevent this kind of tragic downfall experienced by Ephraim. What what is the solution? What hope do we as God's people have? That's the point of these verses. Look again at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. You see, the hope, the solution for preventing the tragedy that Ephraim experienced is found in our children. The solution is to faithfully tell to the coming generation what God has done and his wondrous works. This is the best way to ensure the continued faith of the people of God by telling it to our children. This is how probably many of us, maybe most of us, came to know and love the Lord. Some of you may have not had Christian parents. You came to know the Lord through other Christian influences. But for many of us, Our testimony is what the psalmist describes in verse three, which we have heard and known things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We came many of us to know the wonderful deeds of the Lord because our parents told us about them. And that's the key, the psalmist is saying. We must tell the coming generation about the Lord. Now, why then would the psalmist pledge in verse four, we will not hide these things from our children? Why would he say that? I mean, who would actually hide the things of the Lord from their children? The implication here, of course, now understanding the full context of the psalm, the implication here is that Ephraim hid God's word from their children. And there is certainly a similar danger that we today, even as God's people in the New Testament church, we could hide God's word from our children. How could we do that? Well, let me suggest a few ways that we might actually fall into this same error. First, it's unfortunate that often parents assume that it is the responsibility of other spiritual leaders to tell the coming generation the things of the Lord. And so sometimes we as parents forsake our responsibility to do that. Now I'm going to talk in a moment about the importance of the church in telling the coming generations the mighty works of God, but the responsibility to give, to tell the the coming generation, the works of the Lord, that responsibility is given primarily to fathers, to parents, not here in the old Testament. It wasn't given primarily to priests, not to elders, not to judges, not to prophets. No, our fathers have told us, and we also must not hide them from our children. This was the command given to fathers as part of the Shema, the great statement of faith for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But then notice this, you shall, you parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And this is exactly the emphasis in the New Testament when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not primarily or exclusively pastors or Sunday school teachers. No, fathers, parents are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, telling the next generation... The wonderful deeds of the Lord cannot be passed off to anyone else. Parents, we must make this a regular, faithful part of our everyday lives in our homes, lest our children forget and fall into the same errors of Ephraim. But here's another way that we sometimes hide the things of the Lord from our children. I have found that there's sometimes a danger, especially among us. I was just talking to Travis, with Travis about this this morning. There's a danger with those of us who don't want to manipulate our children, which is good. We don't want to manipulate a decision for Christ in our children, We don't want to assume that just because they are our children, they will automatically be converted. And so we don't want to to, to manipulate them into some sort of false decision, but then in the name of being careful, not to manipulate our children into false decisions, sometimes well-meaning parents actually pull back and don't faithfully tell their children the glorious deeds of the Lord and his wonderful works. I've noticed that sometimes we're more fervent with evangelizing others than we are with evangelizing our own children in our own homes. But parents, how can our children call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall our children believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless we tell them? We must regularly, faithfully tell our children the things of the Lord. Warn them that they are sinners in danger of eternal judgment and that the only way of salvation is through faith in Christ and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to compel our children to repent and believe in Christ with just as much fervency as we do with other unbelievers. And though we absolutely should be careful not to manipulate our children or give them the idea that just because they are our children or just because they come to church, they're Christians. It is nevertheless absolutely true that our children have the spiritual benefit of being in a Christian home. That's a good thing. God has ordained that. This is one of the reasons that there is a clear pattern in biblical history and the rest of church history of whole families coming to faith in Christ. It's not a guarantee, but because God ordains the means of salvation and people come to faith through the word of God, regular exposure to God's word through 18 years of a child's life in a Christian home is a wonderful God-ordained means of salvation. But we need to preach the gospel to them as parents. But then there's a third way that many well-meaning Christian parents often inadvertently hide the things of the Lord from their children. Again, it's rooted in an otherwise correct belief. We believe in eternal security. We believe that if our children are truly uh, truly converted, they truly come to faith, then they will persevere to the end. We believe that. And that is a true statement. So far, so good. But then we sometimes have sort of a cavalier, almost fatalistic view of the world. And we just sort of throw our children among pagan influences with the assumption that, well, if they're really saved, then they'll stay saved. But the problem here is the same. Yes, if our children come to Christ, they will remain in Christ. Christ will keep them to the end. But like conversion, God ordains the means of spiritual growth and perseverance. And the active oversight and protection of God-fearing parents is one of the most important means that God has given his chosen children to guide them in their sanctification. Parents, we need to have a realistic assessment of the world around us in which we live. It is just as pagan as the land of Canaan was. Maybe it's a more sanitized paganism. We don't see actual altars and sacrifices to false gods, but that actually makes the paganism of our land a little bit more dangerous. And maybe it's why we sometimes don't recognize the danger of integrating our children into the world. It's easier to miss the the danger of the pagan influences of our day, but they are all around us. And they are vying for the souls of our children. Secularism is a pagan religion and it has infected everything in our modern culture, including pop music and entertainment and politics and education. There is no such thing as neutrality in the culture around us. All culture is shaped by religious beliefs and values and ideologies. And the unbelieving culture around us has been profoundly shaped by beliefs and values that are contrary to our Christian faith. Each of these Elements of culture, what the New Testament calls the present evil age is actively working to undermine Christian values and undermine Christian beliefs. Remember, this is exactly the problem of Ephraim failing to separate themselves from the pagan world. It's what led to their downfall and it's exactly what Psalm 78 is warning us about. At very least, we need to consider even our Christian children, our children who have come to faith in Christ, we need to consider them weaker brothers and sisters. Would we cause them to stumble by just without any discernment, sending them out into the world with no protection among those who hate Christ, among those who are actively working against God and his people? We need to protect our children. We need to be vigilant as we send them out into the world. But a fourth way that we might hide the wonderful works of the Lord from our children is by not making sure to faithfully integrate our children in the body of Christ and regular corporate worship. Now, as I said a moment ago, the primary responsibility for bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord falls not to pastors or Sunday school teachers, but to parents. But if parents try to fulfill their responsibility on their own, they will be doomed to failure. We need the community of God's people in the local church. Keep in mind that these commands in Psalm 78 are given in the context of the community of Israel. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So yes, it was parents responsibility to tell their children God's law and his works, but these laws and works were given to the community of God's chosen people. And it was, it was within the community that parents should bring up their children to know the Lord. Remember, here we we have a psalm that does exactly what it commands. It recounts the works of the Lord among his people. But notice who wrote this recounting of history and in what form it has been given to us. Psalm 78 was written by Asaph. Who was Asaph? He was a Levite, one of the chief musicians serving in temple worship. This is a recounting of the works of the Lord meant to be passed on to the next generation, but not just in the privacy of the home, in the context of the community of Israel in the temple. You see, when we remove our children from the community of God's people, we are removing the necessary means that God has given to parents to help them tell their children the wondrous deeds of the Lord. There is no better place for us to tell our children the wonderful deeds of the Lord than for them to witness and hear and experience that goodness and those wondrous deeds in the corporate worship and community of God's people. Parents must raise up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but within the community of God's people, the local church. Now, let me make a comment here for a moment to those of you whose children perhaps have already left the home or maybe you don't have any children. Please welcome the children into the church and the gathered worship, just like Jesus did. Remember, the way that we welcome the children of our church into corporate worship directly, r- directly influences how they are going to respond to God and to the church and to one another. Let the children of this church know that they are valued, that they are welcomed. Share a, a word of encouragement with the parents around you who are striving to spiritually nurture their children. If you don't have any children with you, why not consider to offer to sit with that struggling family who's outnumbered? Stand alongside the faithful parents in this church and help them as they seek to nurture their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, all of this has been sort of grim in the context of Psalm 78. The psalmist is giving us a warning he is giving admonitions to parents and to the community. Don't hide the word of the Lord from your children lest they fall into destruction like Ephraim. And when we consider the world in which we live and the increasing paganism and hostility to Christianity all around us and the fact that even, of, uh, even many of God's own people are giving into worldliness and secular ideologies and following the very path that Ephraim followed and integrating into the world and adopting pagan customs and even religion, we might might be tempted to despair. I mean, just think, if things continue in our world in the way that they are currently going, what sort of world will will our grandchildren have to grow up in? But actually, the psalmist does not intend for us to despair. He, He warns us, He faithfully recounts the ways that Ephraim fell into destruction. But I want you to notice his aim. Notice what his heart's desire is in admonishing us to tell our children the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Look at verse 6. So that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You see, Asaph is listing what the results will be if we as parents and as a church gathered faithfully pass on God's word to their children. If we do that, If we faithfully pass God's word on to our children, it helps us to cultivate a God-fearing tradition. What I mean by tradition is, is what happens in verse six. When we tell the next generation God's works, then that generation comes to know God's works and then that has a benefit for even the next generation and the next generation and there's this tradition of passing on the word of God to more and more generations. Reminds me of Paul's admonition to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. That's a God fearing tradition, a pattern that is established and cultivated and perpetuated through each successive generation of remembering God and his works. And here's the really powerful thing about establishing that kind of tradition. The longer that it is cultivated and the longer that it grows and established, the harder it is to completely forget. Even if one generation drops the ball and fails to actively tell their children, the things of the Lord, a cultivated tradition of telling God's works provides a means by which the next generation can pick it up again and continue to tell the things of the Lord. This is the beauty and power and importance of sound Christian tradition. As we cultivate biblical teaching and books and hymns and worship practices and customs in our churches and our homes that that faithfully embody and teach the wonderful works of God, we are preserving a deposit of truth for future generations to take up and tell their children God's word and works. And then when we faithfully tell our children the wondrous deeds of the Lord, not only does it create a tradition that perpetuates that knowledge, but notice the result that Asaph lists in verse seven, so that they should set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Notice the threefold result there. They will keep his commandments That's our goal. We want our children to obey the commands of the Lord. But what is necessary before they can obey God? They need to know God. They need to remember him. They need to know his works. That's why it's critically important that we faithfully teach our children God's word, who he is and what he has done. But then notice that intellectual knowledge about God and his works are, are not enough fueling everything in this text is that our children will set their hope in God. This is a matter of the heart. This is critically important as we seek to lead our children and and disciple them in the faith. We need to teach their minds. We need to teach their wills unless they know who God is and unless they know what he does and what he expects, they cannot please him. But we must be concerned ultimately to teach not only our children's minds and wills, but also their hearts, the seat of their desires, what drives them to fill them with hope in God, to fill them with hope that will motivate them as they seek to live for him. This is one of the most powerful functions of worship, both in our homes and in our churches. The didactic elements of our worship teach necessary truths to our minds and our children's minds, the scripture readings, the lyrics of hymns, the preaching, but what we might call the aesthetic elements of our worship shape our hearts and shape our children's hearts. The poetry of the hymn lyrics, the musical forms we employ, the instrumentation, the reverence that we embody as we engage in these things. Poetry and music and the way we act when we worship shape our hearts and shape the hearts of our children as they witness what we are doing. And this is also why worshiping together as families at home and actively including our children in the corporate worship of our churches is so critically important for the spiritual development of our children. We want them to know God. We want them to obey God, but we want them to set their hope in God. And we need to guard those things that are impacting and influencing our children's hearts You know, often Christian parents are very careful about the content, for example, of the movies and books and music that we allow into our children's lives, and that's good. But what about the other aspects of the entertainment that we allow in our children's lives? Yes, that movie that you've let them watch might not have any swear words or immoral scenes, but does it have a subtle underlying message that teaches their hearts that they must love themselves above all or that, or that love is simply a romantic feeling or that all life is, is follow your dreams. That's influencing their hope. That's influencing their heart. You might only let your children listen to music with Christian lyrics But what does the music and the instrumentation do to their hearts? Does it teach them to to love their own feelings rather than to ultimately love God? You see, if we desire children who obey God, then we need to make sure that they know God and that their hearts are directed toward God. And ultimately, this is what Asaph is after in Psalm 78. God has established a testimony for his people. He has appointed a law for his people, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. He doesn't want future generation of God's people to fall into destruction like Ephraim did. Rather, he wants future generations of God's people to hope in God and to experience rich blessings from God. Blessings like those that he granted to another tribe after Ephraim fell, the tribe of Judah. Notice what he says in verse 68 at the end of the psalm. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Unlike Ephraim, God loved and blessed the tribe of Judah. He rejected the tabernacle in Shiloh, but he built his sanctuary in Zion. He punished Ephraim's descendants, but he chose David, the son of Judah. He cut off Ephraim from leading his people, but he brought a son of Judah to feed his people. And most wonderfully of all, God brought the Messiah. savior of the world, a son of David, a son of Judah to redeem his people from their sins. This is the message of hope that is extended to us, that we, our children and their children yet unborn might put their hope in that Messiah, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Judah, and therefore be blessed for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us your word and you have done wondrous works among your people. But I pray that we would be challenged this morning that it is left to us, the parents in this congregation and this congregation as a whole, it is left to us to make sure that we pass knowledge of your word and knowledge of your works to our children and the coming generations. Let us commit to protecting our children from the sinful influences of the world and to fill their minds and their hearts with your word and works. Help us to commit to do this as your church and help each individual family to commit to do this at home. It is our heartfelt desire that our children and our children's children would set their hope in God that they would come to know him and love him and obey him so that you will be ultimately glorified. And so they will experience rich blessing. Help us to commit to that this day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.